Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you can go ahead and put your, your bookmark there, your Bible marker there. We're going to be in 1 Timothy for some time. And I'm looking forward to this study, and I hope that after today, or maybe even now, you excited about it as well. As you're turning there, I do want to say a few things. Number one, I want to thank Jeff for coming in last Sunday and preaching the, the last sermon in the series that we've been working through of biblical anthropology and addressing singleness from a biblical perspective. Jeff is always ready to preach anytime I've asked him, and I am just so thankful for you and the gifts that God has given you. So thank you, brother, for that. And I also want to thank you as a body Last week, my, uh, my wife and I were in Louisiana caring for my mother who's going through cancer treatment. Um, my father passed away a little over a month ago, and so that was a time where I needed to be there, and you pro- provided me, uh, allowed me the opportunity to do that. And I was quite shocked um, as I preached a few weeks ago and was ready to leave the platform, and Dan held his hands up and said, wait, 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 we have something else for you. Completely overwhelmed by the generosity shown to me and my family by you all. It it took us about four days to read through all the cards that you left us, that you wrote for us. And I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness to you for how you support us and pray for us and encourage us. Some of you just wrote wonderful gifts, I mean, wonderful cards that were inspirational and helpful. And some of you gave gifts, monetary gifts. And I don't want to go into too much detail, but I will say that there have been needs that have arisen, even in the last week, um, and your financial gifts, even in that, were able to meet those needs on the spot. Um, So thank you for loving us. Thank you for expressing the love that you have for us in the ways that you have. Uh, We are so blessed to be a part of this church body, so thank you for that. Now let's look at 1 Timothy and God's Word. We're going to read just the first seven verses this morning. And oh, by the way, I have this great new iPad that I don't need my glasses anymore for that, but I still need them for reading my Bible. So just follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we go any further in our study of it? Father, I do thank you for your Word. I thank you that you have not only inspired your word, but you have preserved it for us and you have given it to us even now to focus on, to study, to understand what you have called us to be and to do as the people of God. 
And this book is very much aimed at ordering and organizing the church. And some of the things that we're going to study in this book are, are still hot-button issues within the culture and within the church today. And so, Lord, we need your wisdom, and, and we have it right here. So as we study, as we open your word, as we read and discuss these things, would you give us the wisdom of your spirit, the, the discernment that comes from your spirit, so that we may know what you have revealed to us and be able to apply it in our lives as your people. I pray that you would also accomplish the purpose of making the gospel clear this morning, and that you would use the proclamation of the gospel and the singing of the gospel and the reading of the gospel to draw to yourselves those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. So accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think about some of the most iconic duos of all times, maybe literary duos or just historic duos, what are the names that come to mind? Some of the names that come to my mind are Adam and Eve. And the two names that just go together. Or Holmes and Watson, if you like to study literature or read literature. Abbott and Costello, if you're into that sort of thing. Or Batman and Robin, maybe of a different generation. Or maybe, like me, Tom and Jerry. Or my personal favorite, which Jeff's going to give me grief over, Frodo and Samwise, right? We have these names in our minds, these duos from literature or from history, but when we look to the New Testament, there could hardly be a more prominent duo than Paul and Timothy. And there's something of an odd pairing as two faithful ministers and missionaries and church planners. Paul was an older man, while Timothy was most likely a teenager when they met, Paul was formally trained in theology in the school of Jewish theology, while Timothy was really trained at the knee of his mother and his grandmother at home. Paul was a bold man, and it appears that, well, Timothy was somewhat timid, needing all the encouragement that his mentor could provide. This missionary partnership might have been an uncommon one, but God used these two men in incredible ways. They worshiped together, they planted churches together, they trained church leaders and missionaries together, they suffered persecution together, they spent time in jail together, they witnessed miracles together, and then they were instrumental in taking the gospel to the ends of the known earth during their lifetime together. And the letter that we are about to study is a testament to their shared commitment to shepherd the church of Christ into faithfulness. This letter... First Timothy, or 1 Timothy, if, if you're of the European British persuasion, and, and 2 Timothy and Titus, these fall into the category of books we know as pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles. They are written to individuals with a pastoral um, instinct in mind. They, these men are leaders in the church. They are being trained for ministry. And so the, the writings are, are specifically devoted to instructing them on how to lead the church properly. The early church fathers, Augustine and Tertullian, remarked that these letters, even at an early time, had been set apart by the people of God for the focus that they placed on the ordering and organizing of the local church. The, the, the phrase pastoral epistle really didn't come about until about the 17th century, but that's how we know them. So Timothy and Titus, they were church leaders, they were pastors, and in the letters that Paul writes to them, Paul gives them instruction on how to order the church, how to organize the church according to God's word. 
But don't draw the conclusion that because these are pastoral epistles that they don't really have any effect on you because maybe you're not a pastor. Don't, don't allow that to be the takeaway you get from this particular book. The issues that were common in the early church, the issues that the Apostle Paul is writing to give instruction on are still very much in play in our modern culture. Some of the very same things that Paul was telling Timothy how to order this, how to organize this, how to answer these questions, some of those same issues are alive and well in our own day. And, and the scriptures address these issues, not just with a first century perspective, but with a timeless perspective, because these are the words of God. This book is going to address the issues or the, the contrast between gospel truth and a whole myriad of false teaching that was common in the first century, and we'll talk about some that's common today. This book addresses the contrast uh, between those things. It also talks about what, what public worship should look like. It talks about what proper order within the church should look like. It addresses church leadership and their character. It, it addresses um, women in, in ministry and women within the church. It, it addresses various age groups within the church. It, it addresses how to care for widows. And it even lays out a roadmap for the conduct that all of us as believers are to be striving after as we follow Christ. So this book is incredibly important. And it hits on some really key issues, like I said, that are common within the church today, that are being discussed today. But at the heart of the letter is this relationship between Paul, the apostle, and Timothy, his true child in the faith. So here's what I want to do today by way of introduction to this book. I just want us to talk about the sender, I want us to talk about the recipient, and I want us to talk about the situation. So we're going to look a little bit at who Paul is, a little bit at who Timothy is, and then what was the situation that brought the writing of this letter about, all right? So that's where we're going. If you're a note taker, there you go. You've got an outline. So let's look first at the sender. Look back at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, it's most likely that this man does not need much of an introduction. Perhaps you know quite a bit about Paul. Paul's one of the most prominent characters, one of the most prominent names in the New Testament. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's how he is referred to throughout the New Testament, even in his own letters. He helped to plant uh, numerous churches all over the Roman Empire, and he did that with the help of Timothy in many cases. He's also the author of two-thirds of our New Testament. Most of the letters, uh, with the exception of James and First and Second and Third John and Peter's letters, most of the letters were written by the Apostle Paul. So we know a lot about Paul, but we also remember that in his testimony, he would tell us about a time when he did not know Christ. When we first meet Paul, he, he's, not a, he's not a servant of Christ. He's not a missionary. He's, he's actually a persecutor of the faith. And he was persecuting the church with a harsh brutality as an unbeliever. We first meet the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in chapter 8. And he didn't go by the name Paul at that time. He went by the name of Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. That's the region he was from. And when we first see his name mentioned in the Bible, he is standing around a crowd of angry Jews. And these Jews are angry because Stephen, one of the deacons in the church in Jerusalem, had just preached one of the most seeker-insensitive sermons you could imagine. And he basically pointed his finger at the Jews and said, You killed Christ. 
And this was all part of the plan of God. And the temple is not holy because you declare it holy. It's holy because God's presence is there. And, and they got so angry that they stoned Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. And, and surrounding those men as they carried out that act of punishment was a man holding the garments of those casting the stones. And that was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. He was there. And at that point, we didn't know a whole lot about him. We just knew his name, and we knew shortly thereafter that he had letters in his hand from the magistrate to actually persecute Christians at the time. But it's later on in the book of Acts that we get to know the Apostle Paul a little bit more. He, is, uh, he had been uh, captive, taken captive in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. And when the, the individuals holding on to him learned that he was a Roman and that he could speak Greek, and he asked, can I address the Jews in Jerusalem? He stood up, and this is actually what he says. This is in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew. So he's surrounded by Jews. These Jews are wanting to kill him. And he says, look, I'm one of you. I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, meaning I was brought up in Jerusalem. And I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was, a, he was a teacher. He was an instructor in the Jewish law of the Pharisaical tradition. He said, I was educated at his feet according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And I've been zealous for God as all are, of you are to this very day. I persecuted this way, that is the way of Christ, to the death. I bound and delivered to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he is just outright declaring, look, I know how you feel. I was there. I was one of you. I was persecuting this way. I understood that what they were doing is not just adding some little needed element to our Jewish faith. They were upending the Jewish faith with all of this talk of Jesus being the Messiah. But something changed in Paul, and he, he goes on in verse 6. He says, As I was on my way with letters in hand, as I was on my way, I drew near to the town of Damascus, and about noon... A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This journey to Damascus, what we would consider the Damascus Road conversion of Paul, this was the most definitive turning point in Saul's life, and Jesus would later name him Paul. But it was on that journey to Damascus with anger in his heart for Christ and the followers of Christ, that he was actually confronted by Christ. The same Christ who had gone to the cross and been buried and raised from the dead, the same Christ that, that the other apostles were declaring to be risen from the dead, Paul says, that's nonsense. Well, now he's face to face with the risen Lord Jesus, the very person that he was so intent on persecuting. Jesus revealed himself to Saul as the risen and glorified Messiah. Saul was stricken blind in that moment. Some of y'all remember that story. He was stricken blind in that moment. But at the same time, he was converted to faith in Christ. How could you deny the faith that you see? How could you deny the person who's confronted you? He was transformed in that moment from being a persecutor of Christ to being a servant of Christ. 
And then as the story unfolds, a few days later, a Christian named Ananias, he came, he laid his hands on Saul, and when this happened, God allowed sight to be restored to him. He could see again. He was baptized as a Christian, and almost immediately, he began to go and to tell everyone who would listen about the grace that he experienced on the road where he was converted. We learn in, in that scenario that God had singled him out as an apostle, that he would show him how much he must suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. And, and Paul became an evangelist pretty quickly. He became a church planter. And along the way in his missionary journeys, of which we have about four recorded, he meets Timothy. And he takes Timothy under his wing and he trains him for ministry. And, and that's, that's basically the story of the apostle Paul in summary. But here in verse 1, we realize that it's Paul identifying himself as the sole author of this letter, and he also lets us know that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, if you, if you know your Bible well, then you know that that word is it's a familiar word in the New Testament. It's a, it's a technical term that designates an office within the church. The title apostle, and one of the reasons I think this is important for us to discuss even now is that the, 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 the idea of an apostle comes with it um, a certain apostolic authority. And there are even individuals that claim today that they have apostolic authority and they are absolutely wrong. It is a false doctrine. It is heretical teaching. You may know it as the new apostolic reformation. It's the idea that there are living men and women who have the same authority that the apostle Paul and the other disciples had and they're claiming to speak for God today things that are outside the scope of God's word. Don't trust it. The apostolic authority that was given to the 11 disciples, 12 minus 1, and then James and now Paul, that, that apostolic authority in terms of their being as people died with them. But their authority continues through the writings that were inspired through their pens by the Spirit of God. But as an apostle, we understand something about him. What does that title mean. The title apostle designates Paul as a member of a small circle of men who both saw the risen Lord and received an appointment by him to preach the good news. The apostles were commissioned by Christ directly. They were taught by Christ directly and therefore they had the authority to speak on his behalf. So as an apostle, Paul was a God-appointed leader of the New Covenant Church. He had the obligation and the authority to instruct believers in all matters pertaining to the Christian life and practice. And that's what he means when he says that I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. This is not something he took on himself. It's something he was commanded by God to do. And Paul used other language to talk about his calling as an apostle. He talked about being called of God. He talked about being commissioned by Christ. He talked about being an apostle by the will of God. And now here, an apostle by the command of God. And each of these designations are drawing attention to the fact that he has authority that has been given to him by God to teach and instruct and order the church. The idea, and I, I know this to be true for many of us, the idea of authority the idea of power, the idea that a man would be vested with the kind of authority to tell us what to do and what not to do, that, that conjures up certain emotions in us, doesn't it? 
based upon your experience of either the right use of authority or the misuse of authority can cause you to be either willing to accept authority and follow it or reluctant to accept authority and follow it. If you've been in an environment where authority has been wielded with grace and kindness and care and humility, then you're going to be more likely, I would think, to look out on authority and power in a favorable light. But if you've been in a situation where leaders have been heavy-handed, they've abused that authority and power, then you're more likely to look on authority and power with skepticism, maybe even fear. And then again, there are, there are some ways in which we have all experienced the abuse of power and authority. I mean, from government leaders who lie to the American people under oath, to bosses and supervisors who take credit for your hard work so that they can elevate and promote themselves at the expense of you. Even to church leaders that many of you have experienced having church leaders take advantage of you, the same people they've been called to shepherd, all of us have, have seen authority abused in some way. And because of this, many of us might assume that you know, all authority is suspect. All authority is suspect. We harbor skepticism born from experience and we exhibit an underlying suspicion of all authority right from the start. Maybe you agree with Lord Acton. You know this quote? He says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe you agree with that statement. I would say in part it's true. Actually, it's not power that corrupts. It's sin in our hearts that corrupts. And when sinful people assume positions of power and authority, that sin shows itself in the corruption that power affords. But when we come to the Bible, the Bible is not, uh, it doesn't give us this rose-colored glasses view of authority. We see authority in Scripture as a good thing that God has ordained, but we see sinful people abuse that authority. Right? We see both sides of it. We see faithful leaders and we see unfaithful leaders. None of them are perfect, save Christ alone. But the Bible's picture of authority is one that we should accept. But understanding that caveat that sin is always crouching at the door, right? But when it comes to apostolic authority, it's a little bit different. Apostolic authority does not imply that the apostles were sinless. We've studied their lives. We know that these men were imperfect sinners, just as much in need of God's grace as you and I. But they were called, taught, and sent out as ambassadors for Christ with the purpose of building the foundation of the church when it came to instruction and organization. They speak the Word of God in their writings and teaching. They convey the truth of what Christ taught them as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that ensures that their teaching is not only consistent with God's revelation, but also consistent with the rest of Scripture. And let me just be clear again about those who might be claiming modern apostolic authority. The apostolic age ended with the death of these men their influence lives on in their writings, which we hold in our hands. So as we study this book together, we're going to encounter some of the issues that Paul addressed, and we need to remember this flow of authority, and we need to take confidence in the Word of God. God the Father is the ultimate author of this book, 
And Paul is the servant through whom God speaks to the church. Paul also tells us here in this introduction that God the Father is also the ultimate author of salvation. He uses this phrase uh, that God is our Savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. God is our Savior, Christ Jesus is our hope. What is he talking about there? We tend to think of Christ as Savior, right? Not God as Savior. I think Paul has the bigger picture in mind here of God being the ultimate author of the plan of salvation and Christ being the actual person of God through whom salvation was realized. Therefore, God authorized salvation and Christ accomplished it. He's the hope on which our salvation is linked and hooked, right? So that's who Paul is, that's the authority that he wields, and this is who has inspired the book that we are reading. But what about the recipient? What about Timothy? We know a lot about Paul. We don't know as much about Timothy, but there's, there's some things about Timothy that I think will help us connect and identify more with this book, and I hope you'll see it that way. Look at verse 2. It says, to Timothy... My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is the writer. He is the author. Timothy is the recipient. Now we first meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And you can just write that down in your notes and go back to it if you want to read the study. I mean, read the story of how Paul met Timothy. But we, we met him, and he had become a believer in Christ before he met Paul. Um, he was instructed in the Word of God by his mother and his grandmother. They taught him the Scriptures at a, from a very young age. So a lot of us as families can identify with that pattern. And when Paul met Timothy, he made a point to help nurture the young man's faith. He even said, I desire to take him on the road to ministry with me. And we don't, like I said earlier, we don't know exactly how old Timothy was. But because of the constant mention of his youth, it's most likely that he was in his uh, maybe mid to late teens at that time. And then later on, as, as the book of 1 Timothy is actually written, he's probably in his early 30s. Um, but Timothy followed Paul on numerous missionary journeys. He helped Paul plant churches all over the world. He preached the gospel. He celebrated the gospel's success. And he even suffered at Paul's side in several occasions, and it's no wonder that Paul loved Timothy and considered him like a son. Timothy stuck beside him even though others left him. Even though others abandoned him, Timothy was always there. And this mutual love and respect uh, can be seen not only in Paul speaking of Timothy as a son in the faith, but Timothy talks about Paul, later in life, Timothy treated him like a father. He comforted him when he was in prison, encouraged him when he was near to death. When Paul was sick and alone and captive and fearing the worst, Timothy was there bringing the parchments, bringing the cloaks to him to care for his mentor in the faith. And it's an interesting dynamic, this duo of older man and younger man. And some might ask, well, why did they care for each other so much? Like, what was the thing that held the two of them together? Why would they endure the hardships of ministry together? Why would they risk their freedom and their health and their time and even their lives for the church and do this together? Well, the simple answer is this. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the gospel. It's all because of what God has done for us through Christ. When these two men met Christ, it turned their lives upside down. 
And it set a new trajectory for their lives. And they were knit together in heart and in ministry when, it, when they just said, look, whether it's to live or die, it's all about Christ. We're going to spend our lives for the sake of the gospel. And when you find someone that is as knit to that purpose as you are, it's hard to not love them with that kind of respect that we see between these two men. And they had a lot in common as followers of Christ, as ministers, as church planters. But when you do the study, you know that they're, they're quite a bit different from one another. I mentioned some of the ways they were different earlier, but I mean, think about this. I mean, Paul was an apostle. There's not very many of those. He was one of a very small number of people. Paul was one of a, 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 a number of small people who actually saw the risen Christ. But when it comes to him being an apostle, that's even a smaller group of people. I mean, here's, this is a larger-than-life figure, the Apostle Paul. And Timothy, he's just kind of a normal guy like us. His grandmother and his mother taught him the faith. His, his mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. So he wasn't really you know, accepted by the Jews early on and probably wasn't all that accepted by the Romans. He was just this normal guy. And, and there's some things in the text that help us to understand just how much of a normal guy he was. So you may not be able to identify with Paul, the apostle, but I'm sure that you can identify with Timothy. Here's a couple of things that we learn about Timothy as we read the scriptures that might help us identify with him. First of all, Timothy was young when Paul met him. He was young. And his youth seems to have been something of an insecurity for him. Any of you felt insecure about your youth? You just don't feel experienced? You don't feel like you know enough? You don't feel like you're ready for that? Well, Timothy experienced those very things. In chapter 4 of this letter, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on you because of your youth. And that implies that men were looking down on him because of his youth. And that bred a certain insecurity with Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells him to flee youthful passions. He's a young guy. He's experiencing all of the youthful passions that young men experience. And Paul is saying, you've got to put those things aside so you can stay faithful to Christ. We don't know how old he was, but we do know that he was young. And it seems as though his youth was something of an insecurity for him. I was... Um, I was 33 years old when I became the pastor of this church. Um, and I can tell you from my own experience um, that being immature as a man and inexperienced in ministry, it comes with a pretty heavy burden. Thankfully, by God's grace, he put me in a church where I had faithful, godly big brothers to help me walk like Mark and Dan and others to help me learn and grow. And I know the church has been very patient with me through those years. I've learned a lot in the last 13 plus years. I'm 46 now. But I'm also keenly aware of what I don't know. That I, they haven't figured it all out. We have much to learn. And maybe you feel a similar burden. Maybe you feel something like that. Maybe you feel um, insecure about your youth. You, don't, you haven't read the books that Russ Rice has read. You don't even know the authors that Jeff talks about in his sermons. You, you haven't even thought about these concepts and these theological terms. And yet, you want to serve the Lord. Maybe you feel inexperienced. Maybe you feel like you're just not ready to lead or serve or teach. And, and listen, godly humility is an important part of leadership. It's an important part of being a faithful servant of Christ. But 
Do not allow your age or lack of age to stand in the way of you fulfilling your calling as a man or woman of God. Timothy didn't. And he needed all the encouragement he could get from Paul, but he didn't allow his youth to stand in the way of him serving the Lord. And listen, as a church, we are in the midst of a kind of growth that has made us a little bit uncomfortable in, in some of the spheres of ministry that we're, we're operating in. I'll, I'll get to like some of the numbers here in a minute, but we have a growing list of needs as a church. We have a growing list of opportunities as a church. And here's what we need. We need faithful young men and women to step into those roles, to care for one another, to be trained for ministry, to step in to begin to lead or teach or serve And maybe like Timothy, you feel that insecurity. Don't let that keep you from being faithful to Christ. That's not the only thing we learn about Timothy. The the first thing is that he was young. The second thing is that Timothy appears to have been a rather shy and timid young man. Any of you identify with that? You're the introvert. You'd just rather not be in the spotlight. Well, when we read the, the the letters that Paul wrote. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul instructed the church at Corinth um, that when Timothy arrived, they were to put him at ease when he came to them. And the construction of that seems seems to indicate that Timothy was not at ease, right? He needed them to comfort him. He was a rather shy and timid man. Um, In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had to remind him, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So all of these things kind of indicate to us that, well, Timothy may have been a rather shy, timid, reserved young man, and he needed to be encouraged. Maybe you would describe yourself in the same way. You're a shy person. You're a timid person. You're an introverted person. The thought of you serving in the church makes you uncomfortable. Look, God can use you in countless ways to serve Him and His people. I'm in a unique position as a pastor. I get to stand up here in the spotlight and preach and teach, right? But there are far more things happening in ministry in this church that are just behind-the-scenes kind of things. Individuals doing one-on-one counseling, individuals who are leading discipleship groups or home groups or Sunday school classes, individuals who are just committing to praying, individuals who are doing all kinds of things in the building. There are countless ways for you to serve and and to help us do ministry as a body that, that don't require you to stand up and speak or give a report. So don't let your shyness or your timidity or your introvertedness to keep you from fulfilling your calling to Christ and this local body. And then the third thing we learn about Timothy is we learn that Timothy, he also suffered from physical ailments. He was a sickly guy. We read about this uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll get to it. But Paul instructs Timothy, he says, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine For the sake of your stomach, wine has a medicinal quality to it. But he says, for your stomach and your frequent ailments. He was frequently sick. This was a common thing for Timothy. And and we don't know exactly what was causing this. It may have been that his shyness, his 
uh, insecurity led to anxiety, which caused these chronic stomach issues, or maybe it was some other undiagnosed health problem. We don't really know, but we do know this. Timothy did not allow his sickness and his illness to keep him from serving the Lord and the church. Some of you suffer from chronic pain. Some of you have constant health problems. We know about them and we pray about them all the time. But don't let that stand in the way of you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Cornerstone. Obviously, there are going to be times when you need to step aside and you need to rest. You need to take care of yourself. There are going to be times when that happens. I am not suggesting that you should ignore the problems and put yourself in greater risk of a health problem. But I am encouraging you to follow the example of God's Word and, and understand this as well. And some of those who have suffered through that chronic pain and still led in out front ways, they can tell you that sometimes it's our weaknesses that are the very things that God uses to bless someone else. So if I could summarize this, Timothy was young. This made ministry a challenge for him. He was shy, and this made ministry difficult at times. He suffered with frequent health problems, but still he kept his hands on the plow. And here's the encouragement to you. Here's the exhortation to you. Maybe you can't identify with the Apostle Paul, but surely you can identify with Timothy. And in identifying with him, find the encouragement that you need to step up and serve. All right. So we've looked at the author. We've looked at the recipient. Now let's look at the situation. Go back to verse 3, and I'm going to make this brief. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, so they're, they're parted from one another, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless, endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The real serious issue, the reason that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter is to instruct Timothy in correct doctrine and by doing so to, to confront those who are teaching false doctrine within the church. That's the main gist of this letter is to address false teaching with right doctrine. Timothy was a pastor at the church in Ephesus and the story of the church in Ephesus is one that is spread throughout the New Testament Ephesus was a, a wealthy and prosperous city. It was famous for housing the temple of Artemis, uh, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and it was a center for pagan idolatry. Ephesus was a port city. It was this thriving economy. It was a commercial center in the region, but it was also kind of a launch pad for the gospel in that region. Um, the Apostle Paul first visited the city in Acts chapter 18, Verses 19 through 20, you can go back and you can read about that. That was during his second missionary journey. He, he was there, he, he preached the gospel, he established a church and he left. He went to continue his missionary work. But eventually he came back to the city and he spent three years ministering in the city. So Paul was there, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were there, Apollos was there, Paul came back and now they have Timothy, later on John was a pastor in Ephesus, and, and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written you know, to the church at Ephesus. And then we learn about Ephesus in the Revelation. I mean, this, we've got the whole story of this church, and they had some great leaders, some incredibly astute theological pastors, and yet they were still facing false doctrine and teaching. And Paul knew it was coming. 
In Acts chapter 20, you may know this, in, in Acts chapter 20, after Paul had spent years with the church and left, he came back and he met with the Ephesian elders and he warned them about something. He said this, pay careful attention to yourselves. Talking to the leaders of the church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. And when he uses that word wolf, he's thinking about Jesus' teaching about sheep and wolves. The wolves are false teachers and that's what he's saying. False teachers are coming and even from among your number as he stares at the leaders of the church. And by the time Timothy becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which is a little bit after that confrontation in Acts 20, Paul's concerns had already become a reality. False teaching was rampant there. This letter confirms it for us. And Paul is writing to Timothy, helping him to understand how to sort things out. And that's what we're going to do as we study this book. We're going to learn how God wants us to order the church, how God wants us to organize leadership, how God wants us to do things, the administration or the stewardship from God that is by faith, right? So, this young man, Timothy, faced all these challenges, and as we get into the book, we're going to be able to piece together the false teaching that he was addressing uh, and be able to hopefully see our way forward as a church. And that's my sermon. But I have something to say in terms of conclusion. And that is this. Why this book and why now? Why this book and why now? We just got through with the Revelation and then we did our, this uh, anthropology study you know, because we just want to poke the bear and make people angry. Um, typically, I'll go from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book and then back to a New Testament book. So why am I breaking up that pattern for the sake of studying through 1 Timothy? Well, I can answer that question uh, with, with two parts. And it has to do with the fact that we are in a season of growth and transition as a church. And we need to do two things because of that. First, we need to be firmly rooted in God's design for church order and ministry direction. As we've seen a pretty substantial growth over the last four years and things have begun to change and we're thinking about a building program and we're still discussing church planting down the road and, and we've got all kinds of things happening here. We need to remain firmly rooted in God's design for church order and our ministry direction. And I want us during this time to reinforce our foundation for ministry in every way. So that we can stay faithful to Christ in the midst of all the modern trends and all the false teaching that is out there right now. And this letter serves as a manual for church order. And we need to study this carefully and allow God to set the trajectory for our ministry in every way. So that's the first thing. As new families have come in and as we're looking at expanding ministry and continuing to do the work that God has called us to do, we want to do it faithfully. Not abandoning our foundation but becoming more deeply rooted in that foundation. And that's the first reason why I want us to study this book now. And then the second one is this. The letter to Timothy serves something as a training manual for Timothy. Like this is what you do as a pastor in a church. This is how you order things. This is how you organize things. And I wanted to allow this study to, to serve as something of a training manual for a whole new generation of church leaders and teachers and servants so that we can continue to meet the needs of this body and be ready 
for what God has in store for us in the months and years to come. So I'm not, I'm not pulling any punches there. I want you to understand, I want us to understand that this is in hopes, in part, a preparation for you. It's an on-ramp for you to get involved in ministry at a deeper level. And we need that. And let me give you some of the reasons why we need that. Let me throw some numbers at you to give you some perspective on this. Since January 1st of 2020, we have seen some pretty remarkable growth as a church. A lot of us have said that, but let me put some numbers behind it. We have added 78 members in the last four years. Our total membership is 168, which means that we have practically doubled in size in four years. We currently have 150 kids between the ages of 1 and 18. Actually, the number is 184, but when you take off those who are not regular attenders, it's about 150 kids between the ages of 1 and 18. And some of you remember about four years ago when we first started talking about uh, building a new building, that we were excited because we had reached 100 kids between 1 and 18. Now we're at 150. That's pretty significant. In other words, all of our classrooms can't house the kids that we have here. And you know that if you're a Sunday school teacher or if you serve in VBS. 150 kids. We have 55 between the ages of 0 and 6, which is amazing. 55 kids in that age range. And we hear them in here worshiping with us. And it's wonderful. It's a blessing of God because there's life and health here. But along with all of those numbers comes an incredible responsibility to teach and disciple and train, and instruct. And, okay, so in four years, the church has practically doubled in size, but our leadership hasn't doubled in size. Those individuals who are teaching, and training, and discipling, and doing discipleship, and counseling, that hasn't doubled in size. In other words, we need more help. And we're not just going to, you know, if you sign on a list, we're just going to throw you into a, a role. We, we believe in training and preparation for that. And we've got a lot of that going on now, but we need more of it to go on. God has blessed us with a ministry that is growing, and we need more men and women to step up, to be trained, prepared to serve in Sunday school, in hospitality, in worship, in midweek discipleship, and in home groups. By the way, on Wednesday, this Coming Wednesday, we're going to complete a 10-week study of training for home group leaders. We've got 10 men in that home group leaders training course, and we're going to complete that. Our home group ministry is just bursting at the seams, which is phenomenal. But now we're about to take this whole new platoon of leaders, and we're going to put them into that role, or some of them into that role. And, and it's going to reorganize. It's going to shuffle things around. Be prepared for that and welcome that. But this is what we're already doing, and there's more still to come. The bottom line is this. Why are we studying this book? Because as a church, we need to be prepared to meet the needs that the growth we've experienced requires. Bottom line. We aren't going to shift our priorities to some church growth strategy. We're going to remain rooted in God's Word, and I believe that 1 Timothy will be instrumental in that effort. So I'm excited to study this book with you, and I hope that you can join me as we study it together with the same excitement, but also the desire to be prepared and the willingness to step in where needs can be met by you. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this book. I thank you for what you've done here among us as a body. 
And, and Father, you know better than we, better than I, why you've assembled us here. We, we haven't advertised, we haven't done anything like that. You've just gathered men and women hungry for the word, hungry for fellowship, hungry for discipleship. So keep us faithful as a church and as leaders, help us to take on that mantle of responsibility. But as we study this book together, Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a desire to serve you. I pray that you would gift us as a body with more men and women ready to jump in, ready to serve, ready to lead, ready to teach, ready to serve behind the scenes in all those ways. Father, help us to stay faithful to the calling, to make disciples for Christ, and to, to be salt and light in our community. And I pray, as I've prayed before, would you allow us to be one of the instruments you use in this community, in the city of Wiley, to make the gospel of Jesus Christ non-ignorable? Help us and use us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.